I have explained to you the eight steps of calm and tranquility meditation, samatha, which are called the meditative absorptions, the jhanas. And I have also at the same time explained each particular insight which can and would arise from each of those eight steps, each of those eight meditative absorptions, particularly number five, six, and seven, but also the first four. The last one, the eighth one, only being an energy supply. There are also steps of insight, precisely delineated by the Buddha, step after step. And while, of course, the jhanas provide the insight at each step, we also have to go the steps of insight separately to see that they have actually taken hold, just as we have to do each step of the meditative absorptions to see that we can actually do them. The steps of insight are sometimes divided into nine, sometimes into twelve, sometimes into sixteen, depending on how accurate one would like to divide them up, or how much analysis one wants to use. It doesn't matter, it all comes, boils down to the same thing. It boils down to actually, finally, one day seeing that this world that we know and which is supposed to be the one that we have our playground in and that's supposed to provide us with what we want is nothing but a stage as Shakespeare said so nicely and that on the stage we are all thinking that we have the main actors role or making up our own stage play and that everything around us is the backdrop. Obviously Shakespeare became immortal because he must have understood that otherwise he wouldn't have said so. If one finally comes to that realization one has taken many steps of insight and that realization is just one of the things that occur quite spontaneously. Insight in the Buddhist terminology means only one specific thing. It means direct personal experience of impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness. One of those three, or all three. If we just actually have a personal experience of one of the three, we will understand all three. They're all interconnected. One cannot stand without the other. But that's what insight means. 
or vipassana in Pali. That's all it means. It's not a method. Insight means knowing from the ground up through personal recognition the understood experience what it means that everything is impermanent. Nice three sen word sentence. Everything is impermanent. And if we agree with it and say yes of course or we say yes but it doesn't matter. Either way it doesn't matter at all. What matters is to investigate and experience. And that is the first step into insight that we can recognize, which leads us to all the others. Now before we can do that, there's a preparatory ground for insight, as there is equally a preparatory ground for calm meditation. Obviously, we've got to clear the area of it. We've got to clear the jungle, the thicket, the Buddha calls it, the thicket of opinions, which have been put in there probably from childhood on and which we have taken on and saying, oh yes, that must be right, somebody said so. As I explained last night in reference to the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha never wanted to be used as the Buddha said so. He wanted to be used as this is a guideline, come and investigate. Come and see are the words of the Buddha. Come and see what it's all about. Obviously, one only does that if one is dissatisfied with what one has seen so far. If one were totally satisfied, why would one come and see? If everything was the way it's made out to be, everything wonderful in the best of all worlds, why would one want to come and see? So, it is the preparatory step to recognize that there must be something a little more profound and a little more understandable and having direct reference to one's own life than what one has seen so far. So that's the first thing, to come and see. And the sec next step is to empty out the clay vessel which is up to the brim with the old water, with the opinions. Empty it out, dump it out. One can, of course, pour it into another vessel which one then can take under one's arm and take home again. But while one is coming to see, there's got to be that space where something can be seen. Because if we don't leave any space for it, what, what are we going to see? Very little. 
what we will see definitely is a reflection of what we got in there already. And that reflection will only reflect what we've got already. So, nothing gained. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Might as well venture something, dump out the opinions for the time being. They're all available again and can be taken along again. We can pack them all up, put them in our suitcase, and burden ourselves with them as much as we like. So that's another preparation which is necessary to gain insight. And another thing which is then actually considered to be the first step into recognizing <coughs> truth is to see that body and mind are two. While they are interdependent, they are not the same thing. It's very easy to see. But if we are up to the brim, of course, then with our own opinions and all the stuff we've read and heard and want to know and want to believe, then that too is even difficult. If the mind hadn't said that the body should come here, the body would still sit at home. It's the mind that has to direct the body. If you do walking meditation, if the mind says stand still, the body will stand still. If the mind says walk, it will walk. Very easy to see, it's so simple. It defies description. However, even more so. You imagine a body lying here in front of us without the mind in it. You can stab it, poke it, cut it, do anything with it. No objection. Nothing. Put a body there with a mind in it. What do you get? A great tragedy. Body and mind are two. And body is the servant. And mind is the master. And the way the world acts, it acts as if it's the other way around. The body gets all the attention and it appears to be so important and it is considered me and we make all sorts of endeavors to keep it and to keep it for a long time and we think it's a tragedy if it should anything happen to it. And we pay no attention to the fact that it is nothing but a servant in the house. That the master of the house is the one that should have the attention. Is the one that should be kept in order. Is the one that should keep kept well. Naturally one looks after one's servants. Maybe in this day and age you haven't had servants, but 
not so long ago that everybody had servants, and if she has lived in the East, everybody's got servants. Of course one looks after one's servants. It's a matter of course. But if the master's in a mess, you can be quite sure the household doesn't function. It's an awful care. And a servant can be as strong and as beautiful and as uh, organized and as uh, well as anything. If the master cannot keep the household in order, the servant certainly can't do it. Unless the servant becomes the master. And then, if it's body and mind, what do we have? Today's society, that's what we have. The material society. The body becomes the master. And yet, it cannot do anything of its own unless the one who is really the master has given in to the demands of the servant. So here we have anarchy, personal anarchy. And that personal anarchy is then reflected in the world around us. The servant has managed to make the master listen to its demand instead of the other way around. The other way around where the mind is understood to be the most important aspect of anyone's makeup and is looked after in the best possible way, not allowed to have any impurities, where the mind is trained to become so strong that it is really no longer victim to its moods, to its negativities, but has the strength of cutting through all the unnecessary ballast that we are carrying around in the way of beliefs, views, opinions, likes and dislikes, and whereby we create our own prison. The strength of the mind should be our main concern. Actually, if the servant becomes very weak, we have also a difficulty. So we look after the servant in the best possible manner without being attached to it and without allowing the servant to take over. So that's another precondition of understanding. And it, of course, we can carry that into our daily life with us. But as a precondition of understanding, it prov provides us with the insight in any meditation. If you watch the breath, the body is breathing and the mind is observing. It's totally impossible for the mind to breathe and for the body to observe. It should be so immediately recognizable that this first step into insight becomes a, an 
a natural way of looking upon oneself. Recognizing this fact will carry, o- will carry over into our priorities what's most important for us, the bodily pleasure or the mental and emotional stability and the mental and emotional growth. The body isn't going to grow anymore. There isn't anybody here whose body is still going to grow. But the mind can. And it can grow to encompass everything. The absolute truth. So we have the very first step of insight. Mind and body are two. And mind is the master. And if there's any doubt about it, to investigate it, to check it out, to know it for oneself. Everything I have mentioned here is all necessary to check out for oneself and check it out over and over again so that it becomes second nature. It's not an addition to that which we are already. It's a purification process, a turning around, which eventually results in a 180 degrees turned around, not by force through insight. We can't do it by, by force or even by wishing or even by determination. It only happens through insight. So having seen through one's own investigation, and all one has to do is stop for a moment and tell the body, sit, bend, get up, sit down. Don't do this, do that. That's all. Takes about a minute and a half. And then one knows. It's the mind that's in charge. And one can then reflect upon everything that's been happening in one's life and see, aha, the mind was reacting. Reacting to this and reacting to that. If we have that taken care of, our next focus of attention will then, of course, be what we can understand through the mind. And we don't pay that much attention anymore to the bodily aches and pains, to the bodily difficulties which are standard for every person. (coughs) There isn't any body anywhere in the world that doesn't have difficulties. Some of them have them from youth, Some of them get them when they're older. Some of them get them occasionally. Some bodies have them all the time. Whatever it is, just sitting in meditation, one can already recognize the fact that bodies have difficulties. So we direct ourselves towards the mind. And the first thing that is apparent, and I have mentioned it several times, is that the breath is impermanent. It starts and stops and starts and stops, in and out, in and out. 
And having seen that during meditation, when the mind is not otherwise occupied, and that's what meditation is for, to have the mind unoccupied with worldly matters. Having seen it at that time, one also knows that one is dependent upon that to be alive that it comes in and goes out and in and out and in and out. One could try for a moment to keep it stationary. Hold the breath. Well, obviously, that can only go on for under a minute. And then one goes and takes a deep breath again. So one knows from one's own experience, all these things take less than a minute. To recognize from one's own experience, the breath has to be impermanent. It's got to go in and out. And we depend on it to be alive. And at the same moment, we may recognize the craving to be. Bhava tanha, the craving to be. Because if there wasn't any craving, one wouldn't quickly do, ah, I've got to be. It's instinctive, instinctive, impulsive. It happens without any thought, apparent thought. The unapparent thought is in the subconscious all the time. I want to be. The craving to be. The resolution for that is not the craving not to be. Because that is just the other side of the same coin. I want to be or I want not to be. It doesn't resolve the thing. So the second step which we can see in the breath is the dependence of life on impermanence. You can do it in the walking meditation. Also takes maybe three seconds. I can't walk unless my movements are impermanent. They've got to stop and start. Otherwise, I'll be glued to the spot for the rest of this life, which wouldn't be very convenient, to say the least. Impermanence of movement, impermanence of breath. Okay, next thing watching the thoughts. Well, one can't even remember what one thought ten minutes ago, very often what one thought ten seconds ago. One wants to go and do something, starts out in one's room and goes somewhere, and by the time one gets there, one can't remember what it was. And some people then go back to the room to start all over again, which helps them remember what it was they wanted to do. That's happened to everybody. One wants to try and remember what one thought at, let's say, ten minutes past six this morning. It's impossible. No way. Or at ten minutes past nine. Or at ten minutes past ten. It is totally impossible one cannot remember what one thought even a moment ago. Never mind remembering. The thought is gone. 
In order to resurrect it, some people have at least that much mindfulness that they can resurrect the thoughts which are important because they have a continuity from the minute before to the next minute, and that's about it. The only other way to remember anything that one has thought is to write it down. And then one can read about it. Ah, yes. Five years ago I thought like that. Hopefully I don't think like that anymore. Hopefully I might have grown in the meantime. Having written it down, like an autobiography, which people do go into for, seems to be quite a popular thing to do, one may actually help to support this absurdity of permanence. Because one can write it down and see, look at me, I thought all that, and now I'm thinking this, and I'll write it down again. The more one writes it down, the more we have this conscious or subconscious idea that this is a continual me because I wrote it down then and now I can read it. But that I thought it then and wrote it then and read it now doesn't mean that that thought is continuous from then to now. It would have been dreadful if it had been. One would turn into a vegetable if one keeps the same thought going. There's no way that we would like to be like that. Having read it, we can resurrect it and think, well, yes, I think like that today too. And then we can let it fall into oblivion again. Looking at the thought as it arises in meditation and seeing its fleeting nature, in fact, if there's any kind of concentration and there is the thinking process going on, that fleeting nature is very apparent because it appears to be like clouds in the sky that are being pushed around by the wind. It's very, very easy to see if we pay attention to the distracting thoughts in meditation. So we have an impermanence in our thinking, in our breathing, in our movement, and then maybe sensations and emotions. Can we hang on to an emotion and keep it going without fail so that it is continuous, the same emotion? Luckily we can't because otherwise we'd probably all be angry constantly be dreadful. It's a good thing we can't do it. Sensation, of course, is the same thing. The sensations are the physical feelings that we get. And they change from moment to moment. Just think for a moment the kind of sensation you have lying in bed and the kind of sensation you have sitting up here, the kind of sensation you have in the sun, and in the shade, and there's just no end to them. But 
most people in the world, 99.8%, that's my own statistic, uh, never ever pay attention to that. Because it just doesn't occur to them. And the few that do pay attention to it like to look the other way try to find the escape route in the other way by not trying to see reality but by see, try, trying to see unreality because the unreality means that I am thinking, I am feeling I am emoting and that's all me look at me, look at me mum, no hands, isn't it wonderful I can do all these things so this me then has a support system in I'm thinking, I'm breathing, I'm moving, I'm walking but that this is all constantly changing and always only milliseconds we don't want to know because it would undermine our ego support system now we have built up an interesting support system which is based on identification all the things we identify with even absurdities like I'm a stamp collector they are all identification processes the job we do is an identification the kind of emoting we do, the kind of reacting we do these are all identifications all the things we can do all the things we can't do they're all identifications look at me, I can't do that look at me, I can do this now that identification system is our ego support system and if we were to see how impermanent all that is our ego support system would collapse and with that collapse if we haven't meditated properly we would feel as if the rug has been pulled out from under us and we don't like that so we keep on reinforcing our ego support system because that's the only way we can feel at all that there's any safety in this very unsafe world should we ever get to meditating properly of course it's a entirely different story now the impermanence of all that we can find within us the heartbeat if it doesn't stop and start stop and start, up and down, up and down we're dead the movement of the blood all of that can be seen quite easily it should never be accepted it should be experienced because only when we experience it does it make any impact upon us and when we experience it and then say well so what so it's impermanent we haven't experienced it because it's exactly the opposite of what we usually experience usually we experience ourselves as solidity compactness as a real person with all his or her dislikes and likes and all the memories which are also completely um, incomplete and are always biased 
nobody's got pure memory. It's not possible. Only for an enlightened one. That we experience ourselves as. For if we experience ourselves as impermanent, it's the exact opposite of that experience. It should make a big impact. But if the mind says, well, so what? It hasn't really looked. Because when we experience ourselves as compactness and solidity, as somebody to be reckoned with, as somebody who's got a place in this world that is real and remains that way, that makes an impact. And every time that impact is a little shaky, we find another support for it. So that impact is there all the time. We know all the time, this is me sitting here, and I'm meditating, and I'm really good at it, or I'm really bad at it whatever it happens to be. So that's impactful. So if the impermanence does not have impact, we haven't looked. We have hung on to the compactness and solidity instead of seeing the opposite. We have done it on an intellectual basis. Oh yeah, everything's impermanent, sure. And uh, that was the end of that one. That doesn't help. It's one of the most interesting things to do because it changes one's worldview. It changes one's whole reaction system. It shows oneself as being transparent. Now, not with the optical eye, but with a feeling. And that transparency then makes it possible for one to be contented with what there is. It's not important to have or be something else because in that other situation I'll be just as transparent. It makes absolutely no difference. To get, to become, to be, to have, to know, to experience the worldly things, Nothing matters because it's all coming and going and going right through me. I can't hang on to it. can't hang on to any of that. Any sense experience that you've ever had, have you got it now? That has to be known finally as a personal experience. It may have tasted wonderful. It may have smelled marvelous. It may have sounded exquisite. It may have looked beautiful. It may have been a touch sensation of the greatest exquisite um, beauty. Have you got it? Nobody's got it. It's not possible. You can't put it in your handbag and keep it or in the bank and hold on to it. There's no way that we can have them. Finally, it's got to dawn on people who want to know. Those who don't want to know blithely go through life with trying to get those experiences again. And some of them, because of good karma, manage very well. They get a lot of nice sense experiences. And we should rejoice with them if they have joy in them. They may have to do this investigation of profound truth another time. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. 
But should we really be interested in truth and are interested to come and see, then we've got to see that. And seeing does not mean optical. Seeing means the inner recognition. Without a shadow of a doubt, if we're still doubting it, we've got to try again. Look and hear and taste and touch and smell and think again and then see whether we can keep it. So we have a lot of experiential work to do to even get that far, which is only the second step of insight. The first one is to see that mind and body are two. And the second one is that everything that happens disappears, keeps falling away, dissolving, dissolution. Now, having got that far, one would assume that one would continue to investigate. Because the Buddhist teaching promises. He says, there's only one thing I teach, and that's Dukkha, and its end to reach. Now, it doesn't mean that he has to teach us Dukkha. We've got plenty of it. We don't have to be taught that. We have to be taught the recognition of it. So he has, he promises something. And he promises it on a, in a way where we can understand each step. And if we understand each step and don't love it, which I have said before and will say many times, it still doesn't work. The love which arises is the kind of confidence and devotion which comes from the fact that we can see a way out, a way out of every problem, without trying to hang on to that, what we have as our own views and opinions. To hang on to that, of course, impairs our ability to see, because views and opinions are like veils and sometimes like brick walls. When they're veils, we can usually get through them. When they're brick walls, it's hopeless because it takes an awful lot of work. Now, having been able to recognize the impermanent and fleeting nature of all that we can experience, we have a next step, a next opportunity to check this out and to try and find something permanent within ourselves. I've already suggested all this. But I'm putting it into context so that the steps of insight can be seen as clearly as the eight steps of the meditative absorption. Now then we can look for something that's permanent. What is it? Of course, there's nothing to be found, but at least we must look. And when we find something and say, ah, yes, this is permanent, check it out for a viewpoint or an opinion, a viewpoint or a belief system. 
which neither one, no, neither a viewpoint, nor an opinion, nor a belief system can be construed to be reality. Reality is that which is possible to experience and then to understand the understood experience. Nothing is more valuable than that. The understood experience changes the whole makeup of a person into one that is determined to know absolute truth and will never be contented again with belief systems which do not explain, which are just to be taken on for granted. It might be useful to mention something that I had sort of touched upon but have not explained in detail. Namely, the five spiritual qualities or faculties which turn into five spiritual powers, of which the first one I have explained in detail, which was mindfulness. But then the next two, which are a pair and belong together. And they are a real help and a boon to any spiritual practice. They belong together and are called faith or confidence, faith and wisdom. And faith is symbolized by a blind giant who's very, very strong. And wisdom is symbolized by a small, very sharp-eyed cripple. And faith, the blind giant, says to the sharp-eyed cripple, look, I'm very strong, but I can't see. You're very weak, but you've got sharp eyes. Right on my shoulders, together we'll go far. Blind faith can move mountains, but unfortunately, being blind doesn't know which mountain needs moving. Therefore, it's got to have wisdom on its shoulders. And wisdom means understanding from personal investigation. And this is the pair of those five horses that pull the spiritual wagon, so to say, of our own practice. The lead horse being mindfulness, and then the next pair being faith and wisdom. And the next pair is concentration and willpower. It's often translated as energy, but because the word energy has a new age connotation, which means nothing, you better say willpower. And that's what it is. It's willpower, strength of mind, and concentration. Because concentration can lead if it is too strong without willpower behind it, it can lead to a state of hypnotic trance. It can lead to a state of 
non-awareness where while there is concentration of the mind nothing's happening and doesn't know what's going on and therefore the strength of mind has to be its partner the willpower the and the the ability of the mind to be concentrated but to have exact understanding what is occurring some people have difficulty with concentrating most people have that but there are others who have the opposite difficulty they can go into a sort of a trance state quite easily but never know what's happening and that question actually came up here in this course and those people should of course go into inside meditation and not to calm it's much rarer than the other way around in fact it's quite uh, quite a rare occurrence but those two have to be balanced just like the other two have to be balanced in order to make that wagon go smoothly and not topple if it topples into faith without understanding there can be a lot of devotion but no insight and if it topples into wisdom which is another word for insight then it can have a lot of that but there is no heart quality the two have to work together and only then do we have a balanced way of dealing with ourselves and our pathways and of course the energy of the will together with the concentration is clearly and easily seen now if we use our concentration to see the impermanent nature we shouldn't just digest it and retain it but practice it to check out whether the information is actually applicable to what's happening with us and having then practiced that information and then being able to check back and see is it so or is it not what does it do when i practice it we have a review and as we have that and see the value of the practice or the value or the understanding of the disinformation then inner wisdom arises from the understood experience because we've practiced it and every time we practice something we need to have a look and see what does it do for my inner being does it become more purified from it or does it become more impure more wanting more rejecting so wisdom needs information it needs of course also the understanding what's disinformation and what's information disinformation is usually provided through the channels that have personal interest at heart they provide this information pure information true information is provided only 
to a channel where there is no personal gain involved, which is a guideline which one can use. It's a generality, but it isn't far off. So as we use our information and not our disinformation, we can then practice, review, and understand the experience. That's the word wisdom. And with that, we of course also can investigate anything that we believe to be permanent within. And as we investigate that and find nothing, or at least doubt what we think is impermanent, which the least we can do, we then, as we continue our meditation, come to the next point, which is an important point, because it's sort of like the springboard towards the rest of the inside steps. It's a point where we, where we see personally the dissolution of every thought, the dissolving of it, the dissolving of every breath, the dissolving of every movement, the dissolving of everything that we can ever make contact with emotion, sensation, body. Everything is dissolving. And because the mind has become more concentrated at that time, it is no longer so interested in the arising, but it watches the ceasing. And as it watches the ceasing, it is a kind of a sensation of everything is falling apart. Very interesting. The mind that is not fully concentrated and is not able to do the absorptions at that time has a great rejection towards that. And it gives up out with all sorts of arguments like, well, what's the use of everything if it's all dissolving? And uh, why was I born in the first place? And that can't be true. It's not all dissolving because if I open my eyes, I can see it as all here. So there is a great rejection against seeing the dissolving unless one has already the substitute of the meditative absorption in which the mind can find a refuge, where it can find shelter, where it can have its home, so that at least it has the temporary home the temporary shelter of feeling at ease. And then it can see this quite clearly. From a practical standpoint, those inside investigations are best done after a concentrated meditation. In other words, not as a substitute, but as a progression. Because when the mind has become at least concentrated enough to not think or to be in the first or second or third jhana, it has a totally different quality. You must have noticed that by now. That the thinking mind and the non-thinking mind, which is the experiencing mind, have the different quality. The thinking mind is moving at a 
such a fast pace that it is extremely exhausting. Whereas the non-thinking mind is clear and calm and doesn't have all this exhaustion potential in it. And because it isn't thinking but experiencing and has clarity and calmness, at least to a certain extent, it can look at the dissolution with equanimity. It looks at it and says, that's it, it's dissolving, it's falling apart. Every breath is falling apart. And the continuity of it arising again is only there for it to fall apart again. And knowing that there are far more dead people on this planet than there are alive people might help also. And you have no scarcity of old cemeteries in this country. Go and visit them. They are most enlightening. You might even meet yourself there somewhere. (laughs) But that's not the point. The point is Death is all around us, constantly. When you go outside, you probably can find little insects dead on the ground. They have very short lives. You will see dead leaves everywhere, dead flowers. But what do we do? We like to look at the live ones. They look prettier. We don't want to see all dead bodies. We like to see live ones. Dead bodies don't look nice. Well, every live body is going to be a dead one. So if we get to the point of some calmness in the mind, the instructions are to use that calmness to investigate. And at that time, it can be quite spontaneous that one becomes aware of that constant dissolving dissolution dying. Everything dies. Whatever has ever been alive has to die. The mind that is totally scattered and thinks about all the worldly aspects of its life, how to get this and how to get that and how to make things a little more comfortable and how to make things a little more right and how to become more loved, more appreciated, more famous, or whatever it is one is after. Of course, it would balk at the idea of everything is dissolving because it would be totally opposed to its aims, the mind's aims, which wants to keep things together and make them better. But the mind, which has already seen impermanence, and that's why this is a step-by-step progression, has already seen impermanence and is no longer so concerned to make things permanent, but sees the impermanence quite clearly of whatever we, of everything we are, and has in the process also become calm, that mind can direct itself towards that truth of disillusion and is not upset or sad about it. To be sad or upset about the truth is a defilement. Why? Because it means I'm rejecting and disliking 
that which is so obviously happening. Rejection and dislike is hate. Hate is not such a polite word, but it is the heading for everything that we don't want. So it's a nice four-letter word, and we can use it to great advantage because it includes dislike, rejection, resistance, not wanting, envy, jealousy, worry, fear, all of that's included. So we have the word hate and we can use it. So if we should see the disillusion of everything and dislike that intensely because it's opposed to the way we would like things to be, then we can be quite clear that we are operating with a defilement, namely the defilement of hate. I don't like it that way. So then, of course, what we would do at that point, we would try to take our mind off it quite quickly and look and see how pretty everything looks and it's going to stay that way and I'm also looking all right and I'm also going to stay that way. That this is a myth and is based on wishful thinking, we like to forget at that time. Looking the reality right into the face and understanding it to be existence. That's the way existence is. And understanding it to be perfectly fine, perfectly all right, perfectly the way we are, with no nothing that needs to be changed or bettered. That means that we have gained some insight, some equanimity. Equanimity in the face of somebody stealing something from us is fine. You know, we're not worried about it. It wasn't that important anyway. But equanimity in the face of everything is dissolving, that's insight. And insight is the only thing that will ever lead to the complete elimination of Dukkha. Everything are band-aids. Everything else are band-aids. And band-aids are okay when we're bleeding. But we're going to start to bleed again. And the band-aids sometimes run out. When the bleeding is very strong, band-aids don't do anything for us. So what this is, it's surgery. It's cutting out the cancer of, that spreads within our mind of the wrong view. Wrong view is the cause for every single problem. Now wrong view is sometimes called delusion. Delusion, it doesn't matter. Wrong view is actually a better word for it because it has immediately two things in it, wrong and view. We've got a view. That's the first problem. And the second thing is that it's wrong. So it's actually an ideal term to use for what we're doing. The meditation path, as outlined 
in these pathways and the inside path, which I'm now actually recapitulating, are the surgical efforts to cut out wrong views. It's only eliminated completely at enlightenment, but it certainly is minimized through practice. And when wrong view gets minimized, there is no cause at all anymore to be upset by small matters. Equanimity is an immediate result of that. Right view brings equanimity with it because there's nothing in the universe, nothing, that isn't happening the way it has to happen. Now that's not fatalistic, but that is based on one's insight into impermanence and dissolution and karma. So whatever's happening is happening. So what is there to get upset about? And what is there to get? It's all happening. The only thing that we need to get, if we have to get anything, is right view. And right view, as the word also says, means looking at things from a different standpoint. So instead of trying to make it all fit together in solidity, compactness, permanence, and all is right with the best of all worlds, and uh, it's all going to be very nice if I only do it a little more clever than I used to, instead of doing that, view it from its reality. Meditation is essential for that, otherwise we can't do it. The worldly happenings are against it because the world operates under the assumption that if we are technologically far enough advanced and scientifically well enough educated, we can make the things we want permanent and we can make the things we want happen constant. This is the assumption which has been drilled into people not only through science and technology but also through religion. And we can't. So we're always thinking either we are failing or somebody is failing us. But all it means is that we've got wrong view. And right view is very rarely expressed. It doesn't fit in to the material world and it doesn't fit in to the capitalistic world. It has no place in it. It's totally out of place in the way the world operates. So right view is not something that we hear about, nor is it something that we ourselves could attain without meditation. With meditation, it's not difficult. It's quite simple. All we have to do is pay attention. 
watch for what's happening. The third step on the inside path is the recognition of dissolution. So we have only got as far as three steps. Mind and body are two. Mind is the master and it's got to be looked after. The impermanence of all that we are and as an extra bonus to search for something that's permanent. And the third step is all devoided. Constantly falling apart. And with that has to come the recognition of the fact that that's the way it is and it's good that it's that way. It has to be that way. And if we like, don't like it, and resist it, we're hurting ourselves. If a door opens easily, there's no pain. If we have to push and push and push against a cupboard that's leaning against it, in other words, against that resistance behind the door, we're eventually going to hurt ourselves because it's very difficult to push against that resistance. So if we resist the idea that the way it is is all dissolving, we're hurting ourselves. But if we can see it in the context of reality, seeing the dead people, seeing the dead leaves, seeing the dead insects, seeing the dead thoughts, being the just who known that the breath has gone and a new one has come and that it's always falling apart. If we can see it that way, then we are on the way to seeing the rest of the inside. There's a very famous story where the Buddha taught a woman about that because she was in such dire straits with her mind that nothing was helping her anymore. It's a story of a woman called Kisa Gotami. Kisa Gotami, um, the name means, literally translated, the lean beanstalk, or the, the, the lean uh, stalk-like. So she obviously wasn't very pretty. Otherwise she wouldn't get a nickname like that. And not being very pretty, she didn't find a husband. And in India then, in those days, that was a real misery for a woman. You had to be married and have kids in order to have a place in society. Well, finally, she met a fairly well-to-do merchant who fell in love with her. And although she didn't have a dowry, which is also one of the things which were against her, he married her. And his family was all against it, and they were saying he was crazy, and she wasn't even pretty, and she didn't have a dowry. But anyway, he married her. Anyway, and the family didn't like her at all. But finally, she became pregnant after some years. And the little baby boy was born. And now the family loved her. Because after all, she was a mother of the grandchild. So everything was fine. 
and she was happy. Everything worked out nicely for her. So then, by the time the little boy was three, he became very ill, and he died. And because that meant the complete collapse of her whole lifestyle, because of course the family would blame her for that, and the husband might even leave her, she wouldn't accept the fact that the child was dead. She carried him around in her arms and ran from door to door asking whether they knew any medicine to help the child. And slowly lost her mind, became quite uh, so distraught that she wasn't even talking properly anymore. And in the beginning, the people had a great deal of sympathy and trying to tell her the child is dead and she should bury the child. But after a while, when she wouldn't give up, they all got sick and tired of her. I wouldn't talk to her much at all or not at all. And then one day, she came across a man on the street whom she again, she walked up to and said, my child is sick, do you know a medicine? And this man said, yes, I do. And she said, where is it? And he said, come with me. And he took her to the Buddha and said to her, here's the Buddha and he will give you medicine. So she immediately fell down in front of the Buddha and implored him to give her medicine for the sick child. And would he be able to do that? And he said, yes, I will give you medicine. And so she immediately got hope and uh, her mind cleared a bit because that hope immediately gave her some strength. And he said, go down to the village and get a handful of mustard seeds. And she was just about to run off and do that when he said, now wait a minute, you have to get that mustard seed from a house where nobody has died. He said, all right, all right, I'll do that. So she ran down to the village and she knocked on the first door and she said would you have some mustard seed now mustard seed is the most common commodity in any Indian household and they said yes sir certainly we can give you some she said yes but has anybody died here and they said oh yes the maid died about four weeks ago and they said oh well I can't take your mustard seed I'll go to the next house so she went to the next house and there the grandfather had died and then she went to the next house and there a child had died and then she went to the next house, and there the uh, father had died. So she went from house to house, and finally came to the last house in the village. And as she was standing in front of the door of the last house in the village, she realized, everywhere, somebody has died. And she went back to the Buddha and said, um, please help me to bury the child. I have taken your medicine. we have to not only come to terms with our own death, which people do on such a superficial level that they say, oh, she, I don't have anything against me dying. It's my loved ones I don't want to die. I won't want to have them die. Um, we have to come to terms with the moment-to-moment -moment death that is arising and ceasing within us. Every thought is dead. Every breath is dead. Have you ever tried to pay attention 
through the breath that was or through the breath that will be? How can we? We only pay attention to the breath that is. And the breath that is, is the beautiful one. And that's the moment of life. Nothing else matters. That is that moment. And if we see the disillusion, not only do we look reality into the face, but we will start to live. Until then, we've been dreaming. We've been dreaming of the past, and conjecturing about the future. If we really want to live, this one moment is the only one we can be alive in. And if we feel that aliveness, then we have life. But we have given up the hope of staying alive. Because we can only pay attention when we don't pay attention to hope. And that hope is futile anyway, isn't it? It's absurd, actually. It's totally futile. Nobody has ever stayed alive and never will. Buddha died, Jesus died, everybody died. So why shouldn't we? Okay, so we say, yes, right, in the future. No, we are dying each moment. Every breath disappears, every thought disappears, every emotion disappears. Every cell falls apart. Everything goes to bits. And the beauty of it is that we have this one moment to be in it. And only when we have reconciled ourselves and have not only reconciled but accepted it as the truth, as the way existence is. And actually the word existence tells us that. X is, out of is out of being. It says it quite clearly. Instead of existence, we can say exit. That's exactly what it is. When we live in that moment, <coughs> then we can live. Everything else is a dream world where we take the backdrop for the reality, where we believe that we can make it better, different, make it appear the way we want it to be. There are all the kinds of dreams and uh, ideas which will never eventuate. And then when we are on our deathbed actually, and if we should be awake and aware of being there, we'll have regrets. We haven't lived. And what do we think means living? Most people think it means having nice sense contact. It doesn't. Because they're just as fleeting as everything else. They're dying every second. Living means being here now. A very nice and interesting book by Ramdas. That's the title, Be Here Now. Being in this one moment. The only one we've got. And if we do that, we can also meditate. Because we're not going to think about what was and what's going to be. Because we can be here now. So the third step of the insight, the dissolution, brings us to life. And being brought to life, we have left 
obscurations which cover up that what really is, is in existence. Obviously, in a nine-day course, we're not going to get to all the steps of insight and all the steps of calm, but if you can realize these three steps of insight, it gives the momentum and the impetus to go further. Give you a little time to ask some questions if you like. Wonders. Be here now. It's called. It's very nice because he keeps on giving ideas on how to be here now. It might be out of print, it's ages old. Instead of reading it, be it. (laughs) 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 I just wanted some more things about the other insights. No. 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 Uh, Tonight I will talk about uh, uh, precepts and refuge, and we'll actually do it. I will explain that. And uh, no. I think this is, uh, at this point in time, about as far as we'll go. If you have specific questions, certainly I'm happy to answer them, you know, whatever it may be. But not an exact uh, delineation. Could you recommend the use of three as um, the contemplation, the same with the five affections, the same? Yeah. Of loving kindness. Um, did you say once there's there's, there's contemplation of loving kindness, but there's also meditation of loving kindness? Could you explain the difference to me? Well, it's it easy. But Have you ordered the tape? Yeah, yes, it's, it's on the tape. Right. <laughs> 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 but I'll say it briefly anyway. Um, the loving kindness meditation is what we do every evening, and it is designed to arouse the feeling, and that feeling then to enlarge that's briefly the contemplation is to that was may I be free of enmity may I be free of hurtfulness that was the contemplation that is an investigation whether one has enmity within and whether that's to one's own benefit and the benefit of others and the same with the other bits of it and uh, as we contemplate that to find a way out of it's not necessarily directed towards a feeling, it's directed towards insight. Contemplation is always directed towards insight. So you're quite right in saying to use the impermanence, to mind and body are two, and the impermanence and dissolution as a contemplation. And I would like to add to that, I have already said, that it is best done after one has become calm in meditation, has experienced calm to a certain extent for a while, maybe half an hour, and then doing that afterwards. The mind is far more capable than to seeing things in a different light. Anything else? I have a question about the views. Um, why does the development and the organs of the 
Uh, yes, it is part of the uh, the uh, third uh, third hindrance. It doesn't. You see, all these things that he says are like headings. Yeah, and uh, the heading then contains other things. So, like for instance, ill will also has in it fear. Right, because we can't. Uh, we don't fear what we love. We fear what we hate. Um, and sloth and torpor has boredom in it. The mind which is slothful, um, laziness and drowsiness is another way of translating it. Uh, the, um, that mind is bored because it isn't pinpointed, one-pointed. It isn't really um, alert. It isn't really with it. So it was I'm bored by this. So what else is new? <laughs> it isn't paying attention. <laughs> so it is, un- it is the third hindrance, sloth and torpor. And of course, procrastination belongs to that also, not doing today what one can do tomorrow. And uh, um, thinking, oh, well, you know, we have all the time in the world, and why should I bother? And this why should I bother then gives the mind no real interest. One has to, the antidote in daily life for that one is that one needs to learn more about the Dhamma, put one's mind into the Dhamma teachings of the Buddha. And as one learns more, one also needs wise and mature friends that help one to overcome that hindrance. The Buddha compares it to being in prison, the mind's in prison. It doesn't see where the door is. So it belongs with it. They are like headings, right? 